0: Very pleased to study the scriptures with you all. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. And cool crowd. I like you guys. Why don't we go ahead and, and start with a word of prayer? Father, we are thankful. We are thankful that, Lord, you reach out to us, that you've called us by name, and that, Lord, you make yourself known to us by the, the revelation of your word. You reveal yourself to us. And most importantly, you reveal yourself to us in the picture of your son. That God, you who have spoken by prophets, who have spoken by your word, who have spoken by dreams to people before in the past, have, you've now spoken to us loudly. You've shouted to us by the person of Christ. And Lord, we ask that we would have a bigger picture of Christ. That we might trust him and we might believe on his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, we're in Isaiah chapter seven. Isaiah chapter seven, continuing through this massive and but and very enjoyable prophet. Isaiah. Um, the title of the message is Sons of Promise. Going through here, there, there's a, a fascinating little section that we find here in which Isaiah brings his son to his work. And it made me think about the times I've been brought by my dad to his work. And it was never a typical, like, you know, bring your son or bring your kid to work day. When my dad brought me to work, It was usually because I was being put to work. I was sweeping. I was doing these things. And my dad has an interesting job. He has, for years, installed bank equipment and moved heavy equipment in banks. There will be so many times we're driving by a bank in Orange County, Inland Empire, L.A. County, where he's like, oh, I did that, I did that, I did that. He worked on so many banks, and he moved so many big pieces of expensive equipment. I'm talking about safes. Safe deposit boxes, teller catch dispensers, and ATMs, night drops. Big things that it almost seems like just watching him, looking back on those days, he almost seems like a magician moving those things. But it was a very simple case of, you know, you have a little bit of leverage on a safe. You have a little bar that you roll it on, and you just use small amounts of leverage to put it on a truck. Or, or various different things like that, and all of a sudden you have this, you know, 2,500 pound safe that's suddenly on top of the truck, or on top of something, or or in a specific location, and you think, man, that's like magic, how he, how he was able to move something that huge. And I think of, in this passage, in Isaiah, when Isaiah brings his son to work, if you will, his son got to experience what he did. And Isaiah is not moving safes, but he's actually trying to move the hearts of God's people and call them back to faithfulness. And I will say it seems as though that moving safes and moving vault doors and things like that is kind of easier than trying to move the heart of unrepentant and faithless people. And so Today, in Isaiah chapter 7, it's, it's almost like take your son to work day for him. And Isaiah chapter 7 opens up on an occasion that's about two generations past where we left off previously. It's not chronologically in order necessarily, but it's thematically ordered. Remember last week, I mean, it's in your, it's in your Bible right here, you, you can read what The message of Isaiah was to the people of God. In verse 9, you see the second part, uh, the latter half of verse 9, God's telling Isaiah that his message to the people is keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah's message was to a people that had become dull, that had become used to the revelation of God, of God Almighty, creator of the universe, speaking through a prophet. They had gotten used to it. It was the same old routine to them, and their ears were just getting numb from it, and how difficult it is to change a heart in that situation when they're just numb to the things of God. And so here... Two generations later, a couple kings later, Isaiah is well into his prophetic ministry. But his message remained the same. His message remained, be faithful to God. Come back to God. Be faithful to God. This is a trustworthy God. So let's open up right here in Isaiah chapter 7. Let's see where we are in Isaiah. Judah's history, the nation of Judah, it says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Hermaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So we have a very high context opening, and I think the time in which it takes us to read a couple verses doesn't give us the full significance of what was happening here. The northern kingdom of Israel, who never had a good king, they always had evil kings, they form an alliance with Rezin, the Syrian. And the House of David, which was the seat of which was Jerusalem and the nation of Judah, whom God made a covenant with to keep forever, was so weakened by the very news of this alliance and by the the toll of the war that was coming upon them that they were shaking and The Bible gives us a picture of trees buckling under the wind, trees in a hurricane, if you will, and they were shaking, and this was as you will see, not only a campaign of just sheer war, but terror. The Bible gives us a little bit of uh, a description of the battles and the wars that took place between this alliance of two kings and the nation of Judah. You can read it. It's n- it won't be on the screen. But it's in Second Chronicles chapter 28, where they at one time took 200,000 of the nation of Judah, 200,000 captives from them. And it was actually, they would have gone further and further and further and completely wiped out the nation of Judah if God himself hadn't actually sent a prophet to those people and said, cease, you know, cease and desist, stop attacking. And so we have this little caveat right here in verse 1 that they could not yet mount an attack against it. And we see that this is the mercy of God to a people that was beginning to be faithless and beginning to forget the Lord. Actually, I shouldn't say beginning, continuing to forget the Lord. This was the mercy of God to give them another warning to turn their hearts back to the Lord. And we confront this king, we confront this king named Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. Recall that in the last chapter, it was actually Uzziah that had died when Isaiah had this big vision of the Lord seated on the throne. And so we have a couple kings later, if you will. This is Uzziah's grandson. But in short, if we want to know what Ahaz was, if we want to know what kind of king he was, we can easily look over at the book of Kings in Second Kings 16 and just figure out in the first couple verses, Oh, he's not a good king. The Bible is very clear about that. He was an evil king. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And for Judah, this is a dark hour. They have a faithless king on the throne, and they have enemies coming up against him. And God sends Isaiah to meet King Ahaz, which speaks to the faithfulness of God, that in this time of great faithfulness, God is still sending out his prophet, but of course, Isaiah had his work cut out for him. So we see Isaiah's encounter with the king in verses 3 and 4. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son. He's bringing his son to work. At the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet. Do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Romalia. So right here, this meeting, if you notice, takes place not in the throne room of Ahaz, not in the palace, the kingly palace, but actually at the end of a conduit at the end of apparently a water canal. And we get the picture that apparently Ahaz was not in his throne, ruling from above, but he was kind of worrying about their water supply as Jerusalem was under siege, and he was hoping that their water supply wouldn't be cut off. And he was so worried about the situation that he was trying, apparently himself, trying to you know get in there and see, do what he could. And yet he does not receive God's commendation for this effort even though you know we could say oh yeah he's you know among the workers and things like that but it seems that God rebukes him for his faithlessness and his lack of trust in him he receives admonition from the prophet who tells him be careful be quiet do not fear and do not let your heart be faint Ahaz was acting out of fear acting out of a distrust of the Lord and although he was preparing for the worst he didn't have a full understanding of the situation that the attack coming upon them was being held off by God so that he would have an opportunity to leave his faithless ways and we have this message from Isaiah this first message from him and it's if you will, a sign from the son that he brings to this meeting that Isaiah brings. And the message of this son, it's actually the first son of the, a couple sons we'll be looking at in this chapter. There's a, The son himself is a message to him because the son himself has a name which means a remnant shall return. This is God's message to Ahaz that no matter what he might do, no matter what he might fear, there is going to be judgment. There is going to be consequences for the generations of faithlessness of God's people. But a remnant shall return. That God was still going to have a faithful remnant of his people. Yeah, it'll be a, it'll be a stump it won't be a full tree of a family tree. It'll be a stump. It'll be a mathematical, maybe impossibility, a fraction of what they were. But God will have a faithful remnant. And so this was God's promise to have a people reserved for himself to still work out his redemptive plans in the world. And so Isaiah's son, this is, you know, this the sole mention we have of his son, was just this walking, talking sign His name was the sign of the Lord. His name was a word from God. And having given this visual sign, Isaiah has a couple things to tell the king. The first one we already have read. It's an admonition to be careful and be quiet and do not fear. God sends this word to Ahaz as a warning, but also an encouragement. He says, be careful how you act. Don't act faithlessly. Don't react in some way that reveals a lack of faith in the Lord. But he also says, be quiet. He also says, do not fear. Because he was also, at the same time, trying to comfort his heart with the promises of God. The promise, the covenant that God had made with the house of David. God had made a covenant with David himself himself. And if you want to read about it, it's in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, where God says, your house will stand forever. Your kingdom shall be everlasting. And that was not just because David was a good person, but also because God was going to use the faith of David and the picture of David and the line of David to bring his redemptive plans forward into the world. And so this is a promise from God that No matter what comes against you, Ahaz, no matter what comes against your people, there will still be a remnant remaining. There will still be a faithful God keeping a faithful people. And so this is a promise that God intends to keep. And believing God's promises should bring us, should bring Ahaz, contentment and not panic. It should bring calm and not worry. That's what happens when we meditate on the promises of God when we understand that God has the strength to deliver on his promises. But what's the other implication of this sign? What's the other part of the sign of his son saying a remnant shall return? Well, God is also saying that his enemies will be thwarted. If you read verses 5 through 9, God is saying what he really thinks about these two nations. In verse 5, we see God saying, Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Romalia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. It was a war of terror. And let us conquer it from, for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. God is speaking to their proposition, saying, Oh, because you're saying that, I have a word for you guys. God says, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Hermalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This is the word of the Lord that's coming to them. God calls them not only in verse 4. He, doesn't, he calls them smoldering firebrands, almost like a burnt-out matchstick, that they're going to burn out soon enough. But he also says what they aim to do will just simply not happen. This is the word of the Lord. Just it won't happen. God, if you will, put it, puts his hand down and says no further. No further. It's just not going to happen and why because he god deconstructs this whole situation god deconstructs these kingdoms and he says the head of syria is damascus okay the head of syria you know their capital maybe is damascus and the head of damascus is resin god is saying deconstructing the whole situation these are just men and what are the plans of men before the lord God describes them just as they are. They're just men. If you look at Psalm 9, verses 19 through 20, we see this situation. We see David calling out for this very thing. He says, Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. No matter what kind of opposition can come against God's people, they are just simply men. And they are, therefore, subservient to the sovereignty of an almighty God. And so God gives this warning to him, to Ahaz, and says, here's the situation. Here's the whole scope of the situation. Yes, there's going to be judgment, but keep faith. Hold firm to the promises of God. Keep faithfulness to god's covenant because at the end of verse 9 if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all it seems like a really good memory verse if you're not firm at faith maybe not something that would go on a coffee mug but something important to remember for us because we understand that being firm in faith causes firmness in stability in all of our lives by simply being firm in trusting the lord but we understand that in this time ahaz wasn't firm in faith and shortly after this prophecy we read in second chronicles 28 22 what did ahaz do in the time of faith in the time of distress in the time of his distress he became yet more faithless to the lord and so ahaz didn't react the right way and when trials came his way and when opposition came his way the temptation to look elsewhere for his deliverance was so strong that he departed even further from the lord sometimes we think that you know when when someone goes through through trials in their life and goes through their tribulation that they come out you know a stronger person but that's only true if if they have faith in the lord if they're firm in faith to begin with and then their faith is tested because otherwise opposition and trials come they will simply destroy you and they destroyed and they began to destroy ahaz because he would not submit to the lord he would not return from his faithless ways but we see the mercies of god once more we see the mercies of god in this next sign that he's giving to ahaz because we see in verse 10 that the lord spoke again to ahaz even though he's proving himself faithless, even though he's not repenting and not turning to the Lord for deliverance in this situation, we see the Lord speaks again to him. And we're thankful that the Lord has mercies in this situation and in my life where the Lord speaks to me again when I'm not listening. But let's see what the Lord says in verses 10 through 12. The Lord spoke to Ahaz and he says, take a sign of the Lord or ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. We don't know how much time has passed between this first sign and the sign that God is telling Ahaz to ask of him, but it could be minutes, I don't know, it could be be months, but God attempts to break through to him once more. But just as in Isaiah 6, as Isaiah was warned, his sign goes out, his message goes out to dull ears, to numb ears. And God invites Ahaz to say, ask me of a sign. Here, here's a blank check. Ask me what you want from me. Some kind of confirmation of my promise. And Ahaz's answer is, Almost sounds kind of pious. Oh, I, I, I won't ask, and I will put not put the Lord to the test. What he's saying is that, oh, I don't need God to prove himself. And we think, man, how great was this guy's faith? But no, it's your arrogance. It's insolence. And he shifts from complete lack of faith to, you know, shaking like a tree in a hurricane to insolence and to audacity if you will it's not pious it's not reverent perhaps he was trying to channel you know the king david remember david had um come under judgment for a part of disobedience he had through god and god said pick what you will um as a punishment for you and david said oh oh lord i i repent of my sins and you you pick my punishment i'm not going to pick maybe he was trying to channel that situation i remember reading about david about this situation but no he's no king david and he had a hard heart, and it simply fails to register with him his dire spiritual need. He doesn't even let the Lord do what he wants, and the Lord wants to show him a sign, and he says, no, I won't, I w- I won't even ask. I won't even ask. He simply will not query God. He simply will not open this conversation with the Lord. And his presumptuousness simply exhausts the patience of Isaiah, as we see in verse uh, 13 Isaiah himself you know he's he's a prophet of God and everything the Lord tells him and nothing more he's going to tell the king but Isaiah just can't take it and he interjects and he said in verse 13 Hear then O house of David is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also therefore God himself says I'm going to give you a sign And I'll give you a whopper of a sign. He says in verse 14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold the virgins shall conceive. And bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. And you're like I've I've heard that verse before. Is this that chapter? Is this that place? And it's a Christmas verse right? It's a Christmas verse. And we quote it around December every year. Jesus coming to earth, born of a virgin. And it's built into our creeds and confessions, this verse. But why should this incredible prophecy, this incredible sign coming from the mouth of God, come to Ahaz, a wicked king, a faithless king, right at this moment? Well, let's keep reading a little bit further about this child born of a virgin. In verses 15 So we have this little mini biography of this child, Emmanuel, and we see that he's eating curds and honey. He's in this wild environment, and we see him mature in this situation. And he's eating things that come directly from the land's produce, and he almost seems like a timestamp of where the nation will be in a little bit. But what does this sign mean? Of course, it's a prophecy of Christ, and we will get to that. But what does it mean to Ahaz right here? What does it mean, what does it tell us about God's covenant and God's faithfulness? Well, first of all, the sign, the first uh, signal of the sign is that God will be present. God will be present. The word Emmanuel and the message of this second son, is that God is with us. God is present in this situation. The son right here, the son born of a virgin, is a sign of God's presence to future generations. That no matter what happens, God will be present. God will be there. His name means God with us. So as it is in verse 17 if we look we, we see that God is present with them although he's present in judgment but judgment will not always last for them as it is in uh psalm chapter 80 verses 4 through 7 this is a passage about God's judgment on his people we read in psalm 80 oh lord god of hosts how long will you be angry with your people's prayers you have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure you make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. But then he says, Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Here is a time that the Psalms record where God's people were enduring judgment, but they understood that God was with them in judgment. And this was God's faithfulness in chastising his people and punishing them for their sins to bring them back into covenant faithfulness with him. And the answer to this judgment was just more of God's presence, was God's face toward them, was God's mercy look, if you will, God's approval right here. So we see that the first indication, the first thing we should take away from this sign is that God will be with them. The second one will be that God will be faithful, not only with them, but God will be faithful to them. If Another translation of verse uh, 14 is that the virgin is pregnant. The virgin is, present tense, pregnant. And he's not only there, but he's working out these things. He's working out his promises to the next generation in the present tense, if you will. God is presently at work. So we see that God is faithfulness, uh, God will be faithful, and he shows his faithfulness in the next generation and how they respond to him, how he makes himself known to the next generation. We see an indication of this in another psalm, Psalm 22, verses 30 through 31. We see David speaking. Um, this is one of the uh, messianic psalms, the prophecy about the Lord, but he's speaking and he says, posterity shall sh- serve him, that is the Lord, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. There's a faith built into the psalm that God's faithfulness will be to the next generation still. Even though they're yet unborn, we don't see them. We don't see this generation, but we can stand firm on the go- promises of God that he will bring us a people of faith into the next generation. So God will be faithful. But also, the the sign for Ahaz of the virgin and not only for Ahaz, but the whole nation of Judah, is that God will provide. And this is a sort of rebuke, if you will, to the efforts of Ahaz. Ahaz is desperately trying for survival. He's inspecting the water canals, and he's making sure, hey, hey, can we get through this? I'll make an alliance with an evil king, as he, as he later will. He'll make an alliance with the, the king of Assyria just to get through the situation And God says that he can bring about the next generation through a virgin, if you will. He can bring about the next generation from a virgin girl. He can bring, if you will, a baby out of nothing. And God can bring about his promises by any means. He can bring about fulfillment to his promises by any means he chooses. There's that quote in your guys' bulletin from George Lawson, and it says, It would be far easier to arrest the sun in its course than to hinder the performance of any promise that God has made to his people. Once God makes a promise, a redemptive promise, a covenant promise, there's nothing that can break it, and God can use any means, even children being born of virgins, to bring about his. Promises. God can do anything. This is the story, if you think about it, of Abraham and Isaac. Remember, Abraham, he was called by God out of this land and he was called to trust in faith the Lord. And God was s- promising him a son and he was promising him a son. And he finally got this son after years. His son was named Isaac, and it was his prize. And God says, through this family, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. Well, what happened after? God asked Abraham to offer Isaac up as a sacrifice. And we, you might know the story. The, the angel stopped the hand of Abraham, and God provided another sacrifice in the form of um, another animal that he was going to to sacrifice the Lord, so he didn't have to sacrifice Isaac. But what was the lesson of this picture? Is it that that God is some kind of cruel God who's trying to punish this poor son Isaac? Well, the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, has a theological understanding of what was going on with this Abraham and Isaac situation. And he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 18, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son as a sacrifice, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And he considered, what, that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham went forward with this, not because he wanted to sacrifice his son, but because he trusted in the promises of God. He trusted that God would give him an heir and give him a son. And he didn't know how it was going to work out, but he just trusted the Lord and went to that point, And he depended on pro- God's promises and he came out on top. It's the same kind of situation here of the Lord providing by any means a generation of redemptive history by continuing this line of David, by continuing this house, this kingdom into this world. But the fourth thing we should take from this sign of Emmanuel, of God with us, is that God will become a man. The the true fulfillment of this sign is Christ himself. And that is what we see in Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. I'm going to turn there myself. This is the true fulfillment of God saying, if necessary, I'll bring about my promises through a virgin. I'll have a virgin give birth. How about that as a sign? And God did it. God did it through Jesus. I'll start in uh, verse 20 of Matthew chapter 1. This is Joseph really confused about his wife or his betrothed that he's going to marry, finding out that. She's pregnant, even though a virgin. In verse 20, Joseph considers these things. And behold, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. Christ is the incarnation of God's promises of God's faithfulness to a people generation after generation faithless that though they might be this is God saying I am making good on my promises and not only is Christ is a fulfillment of promises, but Christ is a salvation for us who came in our likeness that he might save us from our sins. This is God's full plan working out. We can look at Christ and see God's full plan, not just little promises here and there that we, we start to learn and see, but this is God's full plan illuminated in front of us. John Owen, um, the theologian, commenting on these on this verse, says that, it's not that that should be his name, that not that his name is Emmanuel, but that this is the condition of his person, that he should be God with us, God in our nature, God taking on human flesh, coming and walking among us, Christ, the fulfillment of God's promises, coming to earth and engaging with us and reaching out to us. And so, God who uses Sons through Isaiah, Isaiah's son, and then this son in the prophecy makes his ultimate point through his son, bringing him into the world through promise, making known his ultimate trustworthiness, but also his ultimate knowability, that God could have been satisfied by saying, I'm trustworthy, I know this, but actually proving his trustworthiness day in and day out to a people who are quite often faithless. God makes himself known in this situation. And so from this passage from Isaiah chapter 7, we barely remember, we barely remember Isaiah's son, Shear-Jashub. We barely remember King Ahaz, but we remember Christ in this passage because God is the one who directs us to this passage to say, "Look for the sign." Look for the son and call on his name. The verse, uh, in verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The, the you is actually plural. You, you can see that if your Bible has notes and translations. And we understand that this was not just a message for Ahaz, who probably didn't get it at all. But it was a message for all of us to hear and to take note of God's mediator of the Savior of the world that God was sending into the world, his very Son, who was God in human flesh. And so this is for us to respond. This is for us to understand. But this was also a sign for them at the time, not only a sign for Ahaz, but the whole nation of Judah, to get them through some very desolate times. And we'll, we'll read these times real quickly in the remainder of this chapter. What is the future for the nation of Judah? Well, it's not uh, looking good. Even though their enemies currently are stopped short of wiping them out completely, the Lord doesn't have a good future to give them, but it's true. In verse 18, it says, The, lo- the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt. And for the bee that is in the land of Assyria, and they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and all and on all the thorn bushes and all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet and will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of an abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, and everyone who is in the land will eat curds and honey. And every day, um, in that place, in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns with a bow and arrow. A man will come there, for the land will be briars and thorns and as for the hills that used to be hoed with a the hoe, they used to be cultivated lands. You will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but you will be, they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. God's predicting a future that, I mean, it sounds a little bit pastoral, but it's desolation. The land will be overgrown. All the money and cultivation that they put into it will disappear. And so this was their future for being unfaithful to the Lord. But today, what can we glean from the situation? What can we glean from the signs that God has given to us? Well, here are a few lessons, three namely, for us to consider today as we close. Number one, don't ignore God's word. Ahaz had the privilege of God's prophet coming to him personally. And he didn't know what he had. We don't have that nowadays. We have the preaching of the word on Sundays, but we never have, you know, a prophet coming to us where we are necessarily. But we do have the privilege of the whole counsel of God. So we should know what we have and we should not disregard it. We should use every means that God has made himself known to us, whether worship, whether offering, whether times of communion and baptism. We should use all those means to know God and not disregard them. The second thing is be firm in faith. We can be firm in faith by resting in the promises of God. We studied a couple major promises of God, but there are tons of promises in Scripture, and it would be better for us to just rest in those things rather than looking at the situation around us. Stay firm in God's promises, as it is in verse, as we saw in verse 9, or you won't be firm at all we may be worried about maybe the next generation. We see the declining rates of church attendance among millennials and, and all these different statistics and numbers, and we think, what can we do to change the generation? Can we, can we maybe vote properly? Can we, can we get some good leaders in place and, and church leaders and things like that? Well, yes, we can do all those things, but most importantly, we can be faithful to the Lord. We can be faithful to God. And have that as our inheritance to the next generation. Persecution and opposition does not destroy God's people, but faithlessness does, as it was in the life of Ahaz. Thirdly, we should rest in Christ. And if I hadn't extended to you guys just the the opportunity that Christ offers you even today, I would have completely missed the point of the passage. Because it's for our instruction to look for a sign. To look for the one whom God sends into the world. And look to him for not only temporary salvation, not only a temporary reprieve, but for salvation from our true need, our sins. So know the Lord Jesus. And if you don't know him, come to him in faith. Because he is reaching out to you even today by all the means that God uses. By his word, by his scripture, even by his Holy Spirit who convicts us in this moment. So as we consider that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises and your faithfulness. And we ask that, Lord, you might encourage us if we're in a tough trial. Lord, you would encourage us if you see that our our faith is wavering. And that, Lord, you would encourage us to trust in your promises, that we would be firm in faith, and most notably, that, Lord, we would see the Lord Jesus more clearly than ever. And so I ask that you would bless our days, and that, Lord, you would be on our minds this whole day and this rest of the week. In Jesus' name, amen.